Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. This is the OKest Hunter Podcast. Never pass on shooter bucks, because that's just me in the freezer. It's your tag, you hunt how you want. This is OKest Hunter. Hey, what up, everybody? Welcome back to the OKS Hunter podcast, coming at you from Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. If you're not from here, that's pretty tough to say. It's Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Not that it matters. Uh, basically, we're just in a room in my basement, so that's what's really happening. I say podcast studio like it's all fancy, but here we are. Uh, it's kind of awkward because I'm by myself uh, in here, and then I have this TV on. <laughs> so I. You know, I have to maybe think of something different to put up there when the guys aren't here because it's kind of weird. I usually do that so they can see what's going on on the comments and stuff. Um, but we're brought to you by HalfRack, HalfDashRack.com. If you look on the wall here, if you're watching live, there's a bow and arrow just kind of floating on the wall. And it's uh, being uh, held up there with the new HalfRack Hunter Hangers. So uh, if you look at the table here also, if you're watching live, you can see I got the half rack uh, snack bag. We got the buttstock ammo, ammo holder for, for shotgun ammunition. And there's the hunter hangers right there. So pretty cool stuff. Check out half-rack.com. Use code OHP for 15% off. Um, some pretty exciting news. I got my buck back. <laughs> the, uh, the old buck urgent care is his name. So just got him on the wall. Nice uh, memory notch on the belt. So spent some time just kind of staring at him and reliving and replaying that memory over and over and over again. Uh, got him back just in time to go to the trade show. We were up at the Dells all weekend long. It was a long trade show weekend, but ton of fun. Got to see a bunch of people, meet a bunch of people. Um, we ended up handing out at least a, about a full bottle of Drop Time Spirits to everybody that came through that wanted to try it. So that was pretty neat. Um, yeah, talked about, you know, answer questions about Spartan Forge. Be sure to check those guys out, spartanforge.ai, get code OHP. Uh, other partners, obviously, Latitude Outdoors, uh, Go Wild and Method Archery. The Latitude, uh, great, great guys. If you're looking to get into a saddle, saddle platform, sticks, they got the whole kit and caboodle. Um, the Speed Sticks are coming out here soon. You can pre-order, obviously. And then also, um, Go Wild, be sure that you, if you're listening to this podcast and you're also on Go Wild, um, log your time against the podcast. You'll get some points. Those points turn into a monetary discount on hunting gear products, good stuff like that. We got to see Tom DeCray at uh, the Open Season Show in the Dells. Tom is a avid uh, uh, patron, patron, patron of Go Wild and spends a lot of time there. So we met on Go Wild. He actually sent a turkey call that's out of frame here. I don't think I, I, don't think I can see it on the camera. It's sitting there right under uh, the Fred Bear drawing. So he made that from hand and sent it our way with a handwritten note. I mean, you just don't see that kind of other behavior on social platforms like you do on Go Wild. So be sure if you're not there to jump in there. Uh, I don't think they're UA, what, is the, what are those things called? The side-by-sides. Uh, I think they're still 
time to enter that giveaway. You just got to sign up for free. And if you're already in there, just invite some folks and you get a chance to win. So yeah, uh, excited to get into today's episode. I do feel a little naked without Greg and Derek or one of them. It has been, I think it's been two years since I've done a show by myself with a guest. And so nothing like diving right back in with our guest today, Tony Peterson with Meat Eater. He's one of their writers, content creators. Um, hopefully, Tony, I got the title not totally screwed up there, but thanks for, for <laughs> jumping in here, man. That was good enough, man. That, that pretty much covered it. Good. There's good and good enough, and we, we tend to toe the line of good enough around here. So, yeah, thanks for that. Well, welcome to the show, the OKS Hunter podcast show. I promise we set the bar really low, and uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll have a lot of fun with this one. Why don't I guess I'll back up the reason the reason I wanted you on the show for for a number, well, a number of reasons actually but this will just be one of hopefully many is a recent article you put out and I think the title was I won't get it completely correct verbatim but basically like is antler our obsession with antlers degrading or ruining hunting and hunting culture and so forth um, so maybe before we dive into that if you want to just give a quick rundown I'm sure most folks know who you are but um, kind of talk about your role there what you do and kind of how you came to this disposition over over years of being in the space how far back do you want me to go i mean you could start from day one then we can just leapfrog a little bit yeah yeah there's an origination story here if you want to hear it man um that i kind of do actually uh, well we'll start there you know that article that you're talking about on uh meat eater site you know the meteor.com that is like 35 years in the making at this point basically but you know my thing, I started out in the hunting industry, you know, in 2003, I published my first article. It was actually a fishing article, but I started getting into the industry when I was in my early 20s. And I'd been a hardcore bow hunter my whole life, been a, you know, a tournament fisherman. I'd done, a, I'd done some stuff, but that was like my first, like first time I walked through the door and I was like a part of the club, right? And I was a, I was associate editor at Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine. And I was like, oh my God, I have landed my dream gig, right? Like you've got new bows showing up and new tree stands and like all of a sudden, just because of the title, you're like kind of the man, right? People are sending you and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You're like, well, this is great. Yeah, I mean, it was it was wild for me. I was 26. I, I went from working at a mortgage company and selling wine on the side to, you know, as an editor of a bow hunting magazine. And I was like, I was working in the in fisherman office, you know, and I, you know, I grew up watching in fishermen, reading in fishermen. And, you know, so I'm down the, the hallway from those guys. And I was like, Holy cow, this is like, this is it. I'm done. I peaked at 26, you know, <laughs> and over the course of a couple of years there, that, that company I work for owns, uh, the Sportsman's Channel, the Outdoor Channel, uh, one of the one of the fishing channels. I can't remember which one. Big, it's a big company. They yeah. own a bunch of magazines, bunch of titles, whatever. So I was really kind of thrust into the middle of the outdoors industry. And you know, and my role at editing at that magazine was, you know, Bill Winky was a major writer there. He probably still is. I don't know. Um, but it was like it, it quickly took me from being this guy who was only a DIY hunter. And just knew that world to being exposed to all of these guided hunts and all of this like really well managed property type of whitetail stuff. And I just went, holy cow, like this is so not relatable to me. I was in a weird place with it. And it made me realize like, man, we're, we're giving 
so much weight to this one kind of hunter. And I'm, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not saying, I love Bill Winkie. Like, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying so much of the how-to information was coming from people who have such good places and such good opportunities. And I was sitting there going, you know, like I'm a knock on it's the door. Disproportionate. Kind of yeah, that's, that's just a disproportionate uh, scale. Yeah. I mean, just totally, it, w- it was weird. And so I knew, you know, when the mortgage industry collapsed and I, I knew when the economy tanked in 08, I was like, this, this company, we just got bought by a different company. I was like, I'm going to be showing the door here. I'm low guy on the totem pole. And I was like, I'm going to go be a freelance writer and I'm going to start killing big bucks on public land and showing these people that you can do it. And man, when, when that happened, it was like, I was, as soon as that title is stripped from you, you're back to like zero and you got to start over. But I wanted to stay in the hunting industry because I believed in the message and I wanted to just always be a writer. And so I started, you know, hitting the public land thing hard and it just resonated. I mean, people were, you know, I'd speak at a deer classic or something and people were like, thank you. And then, you know, in, in that process, you know, we had seen like the trophy thing get so heavy with the the rise of so many outdoor television shows and stuff. That was really when outdoor television, like network television really skyrocketed. And there was just fatigue. Like the audience was like, I've never seen a 170 and I can turn on the channel and I can watch 10 of them die in five hours. You know, it was just, it was such a weird thing. And so we, we hit that point and that wave kind of broke and opened up this world where we could hunt public. And, and, you know, you saw Steve Rinella kind of rise from those ashes and Randy Newberg and the hunting public a little later. And it just created this space and it was awesome for a while. And now that trophy thing has really kind of invaded the public land hunting and we're seeing the small buck shaming thing come there. And I'm just looking at it and I go, God, we, we can't help ourselves. We just get so hard into the antler obsession and it sort of just takes away from so much of what we're just, so many of the reasons we're out there. And so I'm kind of, kind of pushing that message, I guess I'll say, if that's a long winded answer there. No, I I think it's cool to talk about like the start and how it's kind of come full circle. I didn't, I didn't uh, put my finger on the way you had where you're considering like now that same type of demeanor or approach or like mentality has come to public, you know, public's interesting because public, like I've only ever always hunted public land and it's, and you know, when I was growing up, growing up hunting, I'm 37 now. I started hunting in my you know, like teenage years, got out of it kind of, and then swung back in and went like really deep, uh, you know, from there on forward. And, and back then it was like, oh man, I wish we had private. And, you know, my dad and I would be up north and like, oh, they must, that's a big one. I bet you they got that on private, you know? And it wasn't like we were saying must be nice. It was just like, well, that's, that's where the big bucks are. They're not, you can't find them on public. So then yep. you, you pave this, this path and, um, you know, now public land has this, it, it, for a while there, it had this badge of honor. Like you're a badass, yep. you can do it. Holy crap. And now it's actually getting, it's changing. I think right now we're in the spot where, where is that message getting fatigued a little bit? Are people getting tired of that? Like it's, it's 100%. Just, yeah. And, and it's not, I don't think public land or private, they have, they each have their, their unique challenges and both require a lot of work. It's just different loads of work. You know, yeah, I can't imagine the type of work yeah. and cost that goes into food plots and um, creating soft edges and habitat and dealing with neighbors that might be a holes or you know you, that's your plot that's what you have and and you get what you get and you got to work it and either you can do it or you can't and publics you don't have any of that you have all the opposite stuff so that there's give yeah. and take there they're not one is not better than they're just 
different. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, we're at such a weird spot with whitetail hunting because we have really figured out if you have, if you have enough land and you have the wherewithal to do it, we can create a spot deer are not going to leave. Like we, we kind of know how to kill the big ones. Now, if you, if you have control over enough, you can do it. And that's great. Like, that's great. People love doing that. And I think like, I don't want to take that away from people. I think it's awesome. They can do that, but you have, you, you have to acknowledge that that's a different thing than a lot of people have in their hunting situation, but everybody's sort of comparing themselves to everyone else. And it's gotten really weird. Like when I see, you know, somebody who goes out and kills like a 110 inch buck on public land and they're getting small buck shame for that. I just go, what are we doing here? You know, or you see on some of the network shows now where it's like, it used to be maybe one kill per show and, you know, it might be a really good buck. It might be like a 150 or something. But now you can watch 21 minutes of a show and there might be 340, 150 inches that die there. That's such a weird thing. Like yeah. most people yeah. are never going to see a single buck like that in any given season. And yet, <laughs> like there's that that babysat world where that's going to happen. No problem. And everybody's sort of looking at it. And we have such like an there's, there's like so much ego built into this right now and this comparison thing. And it's just, it's crazy. We kind of just need to take a step back and recognize how lucky we are just to get to hunt deer and how lucky we are. We live in a country that has a ton of public land. Yeah, Like we have, we have things going for us here that are real special and we should probably acknowledge that. I think it's a good, it's a good call out. My, Michael Waddell, when he had, we had him on like a year, a year ago and he said, and I'll get the quote wrong a little bit, but it was like, hunting don't make you badass. It's badass that you get to hunt. Like, and that was a really great way to sum that up. Like, you know, and he's like somewhere, some kids putting on, you know, face paint, just like you are. And they killed a 12 pointer, you know, like, and they're, and they're 12. Like, it's not at the end of the day, it's deer. And I, you know, I have to remind myself sometimes even, um, that, you know, there are different stages in, you know, what you'd call maybe the hunter's journey or their development. You, you kind of have that, that shooting, that shooting stage, you know, um, where you'll shoot kind of anything you're limiting out, trophy then the method and then that sportsman stage and i think my uncle is in the sportsman stage where he'll just happily observe large deer and take pictures and bring his camera with him and it's pretty rare that he's going to pull back on something or, or pull the trigger because he just appreciates it now he's in his 80s you know that's a very different place than someone who's in their 30s or the younger 20s and i've, I've often said like it could be your last time with your grandpa, your first time with your, with your dad or your kid, or someone could have passed that season and there could be significance there. And so when that grip and grin shows up online, you know, to be that keyboard cowboy, you don't have the context of what went into that hunt or who they did it with or how they harvested that animal. Maybe it was the first time in a new state. Like you just don't have all that information for someone to cast judgment off of one photo. I mean, that, that is social media, hunting or not, it's everything. And uh, it's unfortunate. It's so, it's so dumb. And it, I mean, and like you said, I, I always think about this where, you know, people make the argument that you got to let them go so they can grow. Right. We've heard that a million times. And, you know, you're greedy if you shoot a forky. And I'm like, well, is it not greedy to want to shoot that 140? Like, what's the difference? Or, you know, like if you value meat more than antlers, like, are you a lesser hunter? Like, I don't I don't think so. Right. Right. But we get the stuff all mixed up. And I always, you know, I'm getting to the age now where I'm like, 
I look at this stuff and I go, man, you just, you just got to find your own path in this stuff. Like what, what does it for you? You know, and you, you go through different stages and you learn different things and you hit a point where it's going to change. Like you might, when you're 20, you might love big deer. That might be it. When you're 40, it might be that full freezer that matters the most to you. And I just look at it and I go, we're here. Like, you know, we're not curing cancer and kids here. We're hunting deer. Like this is just a, a pastime for us. And it's great. It's awesome. But it's like, it's not so important that we need to be really shitty to each other over it. I just, I, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. My tag, my hunt is kind of the, the message that we've been pumping out. Like as long as you're doing it legally and ethically or, you know, as ethically, ethically as possible, um, then they're, they're like, don't worry about it. Like if you want to buy my tag, maybe then you can have a say in how I hunt. But until then, like, my money. I bought the tag. The DNR said there's this many tags they can give out. I have one of those tags. What I choose to shoot with it isn't really your business. And I do agree that there is some selfishness that goes on. Um, there's certain outfits out there that would prefer we don't post anything on social media. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I have mixed ideas about you know my belief towards social. I don't think it's all bad. I think there's some inherent issues with it. But you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I think... Some of the numbers that I looked up in preparation for this podcast, and I won't get any of the numbers uh, accurate here because I'm certainly not going to do math. I don't know if you ever listen to the show, but I'm uh, pretty terrible at it. Uh, <laughs> but the the general growth of the United States popula population of the United States is growing at a clip that is over ten times that of how uh, hunter numbers are growing. So some may argue that you know we don't need more hunters, we need less hunters, and I think that's a selfish selfish disposition a little bit. Um, Versus like the R3 movement of recruit, retain, reactivate, let's bring more people in because more dollars, more conservation, we can protect those public lands that people think are you know getting bought up when it's pay to play. Where I'm going with this is that hunter numbers are growing, but they're growing so much less than or at a rate that's so much less than the greater population that we're being outpaced. So the, what I'm speaking to is the number of or the gap between the people that don't hunt versus do hunt is widening so fast that... Yep. It's not that everyone that doesn't hunt is an anti-hunter. They just don't hunt. They don't care one way or the other. They're very neutral. But because we're outnumbered, those people at the polls could beat us tomorrow. They could beat us tomorrow. The hunting could be gone this next election. Like, technically, we, ha we don't have the numbers to compete at the ballots. Um, so, well, like, why not, fight not, with each other is kind of the point. Not only that. So, when I, I started hunting whitetails in 1992, that's when I turned 12. And back then, that was when the boogeyman was the animal rights activists. Like, that was a big thing where, like, our enemy are these people who hate hunters, mm -hmm. the PETA crowd, whatever. We still think and that, I think, you know? What's that? I think people still have that belief. I think it's been a little inst institutionalized. It just as they think, like, you know, fat will make you fat. <laughs> it's like, well, not all fat's bad fat. Anyway. No, yeah, that's exactly where I'm going, is we we were kind of you know, that was like indoctrinated into us. But the reality is if you look at the hunting opportunities we've lost in the last 10 years, it's either just from a loss of land through urban sprawl and that population growing, like you said, or more likely hunters advocating to take away other hunter opportunities. And this is what drives me crazy. Like I, that whole idea that we don't need more hunters and there's enough hunters out there drives me nuts. I think our obligation is to get kids and get people out into the outdoors and keep this thing alive as long as possible. Like, 
that is a hill I'm going to die on. And when you look at like what's happened out West with non-residents versus residents and how that's creeping East here, we are, we are our own worst enemy. And it's always boils down to, I want to get mine. And if I have a way to screw other hunters, but I can get easier hunting for myself, I'm going to do it. And we do this. This is, this happens across the board. It's, it's easiest to see out in some of the Western States with the keynote animals like elk and, you know, Shiras moose and whatever, but really this is coming for us in the whitetail world and it's not going to be good. And I think, I think we need to put our efforts into getting people out there and getting these like tax incentivized incentivized programs to get more public land, you know, private land open to the public. Like I think, I think we should just be focusing on how do we open up more land for everyone? You know, the rabbit hunters, the deer hunters, everybody yeah, who wants yep. to get out there. Cause I think we need these hunters. Like I, I think it's just absolutely our obligation to get them out. Tony Cordero, who I just saw at the show um, last weekend, without more hunters, we're going to lose. I, I, I don't, I can't right. not agree with that. I just can't get on board with the other one. And it, I think it, there's two types of personalities and I've, and I've, there's more of one than the other. So I think we're by and large, we're okay. I mean, we're really pulling a thread here of like, you know, the, the 1% of the news is bad and that's, that's what gets reported on. You know, there's like 1% of hunters that are shit bags and that that's what like, you know, makes it sound so ugly here in the space that like not on the podcast, but just in general. Um, but that, that one egg can ruin the bunch kind of a mentality. Um, there's two types of hunters. I think there's the ones that are like so happy, if not more happy when someone else gets a deer than themselves. Like if I bring a buddy hunting, I, I, I've let deer walk past me to go to a buddy that was hunting for the first time ever, because I'm like, well, I'm, I'm I'll figure it out. You've never even seen a deer in the woods. If you can even see one, I think that's going to spike your interest and get your heart pumping. You're going to experience what we all love to experience. And hopefully you get a shot at it and you can shoot it and we can go down that path. Um, then there's the hunters that are like, they would have shot that deer, not let it walk. And they would have pumped their chest about it. And I think that's just, that's just human nature stuff, but human nature knows no bounds. So of course there's some of those people in hunting. They're in everything, um, in different pockets. You could, you could dive into any niche, whether it's fishing, trapping, hunting, uh, could be yeah, knitting for all I care. Like there, you're going to have things that are wonky and out of place and out of alignment. But for us, the scary thing is like, no one's going to take knitting away from grandma Susie, but someone could take hunting away from us. And that's, a concern, one that we need to like get our shit together about as a collective audience of hunters. And yeah. I think it just starts with not letting the neck bite the head off. Yeah, man. I think I, I, I agree so much. And I think one of the things that about this, that drives me, I've, I've been bitching about this so much lately. And so I apologize if people, this is good. This is a good venting podcast. session for both of us. But, I don't have a lot of outlets for this kind of talk. So it's been pretty nice man, so far. <laughs> when, when I look at, I bring up the resident, non-resident hate thing a lot. And one of the things that just drives me crazy about hunting in general is even though like we talk about strategies and tactics and you're a bed hunter and I'm a staging area hunter and whatever, there's, there's, this just natural bend to try to make it easier and easier and easier. And the way to do that is to keep people out. We know that, you know, like you talk to somebody who lives in an over the counter unit in Colorado for elk, they know if the non-residents go away, their hunting gets easier. That's a hell of a lot easier than them scouting harder and getting in better shape and, you know, hunting a few more days and staying out there in a bivy sack when it's raining or whatever. And I think we really need this message to get out that like, this isn't supposed to be easy. 
Like, and it, and if you need it that easy, like where you're willing to take away other hunters opportunities, man, I think you got to take a look at yourself and go like, could I be putting in a little more or are my standards too high or why am I not happy with this? Why am I blaming like, someone else? Like, we're, you know, a, a lot of people that would maybe follow like, you know, uh, Jocko Willink, he wrote the book, Extreme Ownership. Like, yeah. own it. If you have a problem, there's a good chance you might be the problem. Like, Taylor Swift, hey, I'm the problem. It's me. Like, maybe you're – I quote Taylor Swift on the last three podcasts. I swear to God, it's becoming a problem. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but there's, like, there's like that one guy at work that's, you know, the one that uh, – I'm not going to tell you who I did it because they're, like, fending for their job security. But if you would share that knowledge, it would be better for the overall good of the company and the business – and rather than hoarding your unique skill that you think is so hard to replicate, the company could tank rather than letting it flourish. Like this, that is the mindset. And I don't know how much more I can study, you know, uh, human nature to try to understand why that is a way that we need to think that we need to guard, like you said, the out of state, uh, you know, takes. Like, no, you can't have that because then it makes it harder for me. That's the wrong way of thinking. And I don't know how to say that to some of those people without putting their guard up. And that's what I've been trying to practice. Um, you come it, at people that way, their guard is going to go up and you're going to create a, an argument. There's a better way that we, the people that have this belief, need to communicate this stuff without attacking someone's beliefs to yeah. open them I up. I mean, the, the first step, honestly, is for us to be more honest. Like I, I talked to the hunting public about guys about this recently where it's like, even if you, take me, even if I go out and I hunt public land and I kill four big bucks in a season, people look at that and they go, that's amazing, right? If I'm not honest about how those opportunities came to be, then it sucks, right? I didn't pay for those bows. I didn't, you know, I had a point in my life where before we had kids, I only did this. So mm -hmm. I could go for 10, 12 days at a time and I didn't have to be home till I filled a tag or I just ran out of money or whatever. Like there's, there's so, it, the, like the, the image that's presented from the hunting industry on this. And it's, I mean, that's leaked into just the general audience, like general hunters too, is that this is just like, we're so good at this. Like you have to just like marvel at our skill. And if we don't acknowledge the, the absolute privilege and benefits we have, like some of us, I think it's so, so damaging. Cause I don't want somebody to look at that and go, why can't I go out on that public land in Northern Wisconsin and kill a big buck? And it's like, there's a billion reasons why, like, cause it's really, really difficult. You might not have very much time. You might not have very much experience. There's so much that goes into this. And if we gloss that over and we're not honest about it, I think that sucks. It's, I think it's such a disservice to just the hunting community. Yeah, I would agree. And, um, I don't know that, that unless you're Derek Melkor, who's our podcast co-host, not, who's not here. He seems to be able to kill big bucks in the northern woods of wisconsin but to the rest of us they're there know, they, yeah it's vast it is really hard to hunt but I, I, that's one of the things that we say is like we say never pass and we say that to be like abrasive and contrasting because of the you know he said earlier like the people that say you you should let that grow or whatever it's like yeah never how about never pass how about never let it walk and, and i don't mean that like to shoot every damn deer you see unless you're greg trying to stack does for his freezer uh one of the comments that came through from our buddy greg what I'm saying is that never pass on an opportunity to, to do what makes you happy. And if that's the buck that got you, you, you know, excited like a kid on Christmas, got your legs shaking, your heart pumping, then you shoot it. And then don't follow up with, 
Uh, well, he wasn't the biggest one, but look, if he was big enough for you to pull the trigger, don't disrespect the animal. Just own it. He was big enough. It's fine. Look, if he's got antlers, he's got handles you can drag him out by. How about that for the bonus? You know, like there's there's like the hunter shaming, then there's a self shaming that's going on. Like you're getting on the 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 defense before you even put it out there because you are already preparing and bracing for you know the the rhetoric that's going to come your way in the commentary, um, yeah. which is just it, that's where we've come to. That everyone has to kind of you know like mask. They have to say that first because heaven forbid, you know. Well, it, it's a weird thing, man. It, like hunting is one of the few things you you can't even do this in fishing. Like whitetail hunting, you don't you don't need any skill to be successful. There's situations where you can hunt, and I've I've been on those hunts. Like I've been invited to some of those hunts where. I killed bucks that I could have killed with a cinder block, like big bucks <laughs> that were so dumb. I mean, it, the first time I hunted Texas, I was like, this is so bizarre. Like yeah. it, 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 it was so easy, but we just, we look at that and go like, we're all at the same level. And it's like opportunity wise, that's not even close experience wise, not even close. Like, and just, you know, regionally, you know, like if you live in Northern Wisconsin and you're hunting the big woods, you're in a different world than somebody in northern Missouri hunting ag fields or something, you know, and and they're both awesome. They're just different things. And I think that's one of the big problems we have is when you start traveling and hunting all over the place, you realize how not good you really are at a lot of this because people get kind of this like local bias where like, oh, I'm a real badass because I kill a lot of deer here. And it's like, that's great. You kind of mastered that little, you know, that little world. But this is a big thing here like could you go down into public land in florida and kill one probably not you know like you kind of got to recognize and go like okay this is cool but it's not that big of a deal like you're just because you're killing big bucks somewhere like you know well yeah and okay, the circumstances are, are are uniquely different across the map like the guy hunting in florida is different circumstances and deer and situations than the guy in maine than the guy in wisconsin than the guy in new mexico or what like you can't blanket this stuff and social media has opened it up to such a point where you're seeing it uh, everywhere. And then, you know, Michigan has different laws in Wisconsin than minute, like Minnesota's rifle season goes right through the rut. That doesn't happen here in Wisconsin. Like there's just people, people this last season where it really took the cake for me was people were getting pissed off that youth hunters were shooting their deer on a youth hunt. And they said, those kids should have it just as hard as the rest of us because we're spoon feeding them and they're, we're raising a bunch of participation trophy Peppa Pig kids. And I'm like, sure, there, there's a, there is something to that, like that we shouldn't make it so easy. But also, if, if we're not getting any people to come into the sport, like this is an opportunity where like take your kid to work day, you know, like it's an opportunity to show them something and it's just a different experience. It's not yeah. to say that we're like, oh, it's raining out. We're going to move the youth hunt this weekend because it should be candy bars and lollipops. That's not what's happening. It's still yeah. hunting. Uh, that, that you killed my deer thing is weird. It, we wouldn't, that wouldn't exist without trail cameras, like not nearly to mm -hmm. the extent it does now. Cause we get this sort of overinflated sense of entitlement with trail cameras. Cause we see deer that we wouldn't normally see and people think that they're living there and that there's, you know, like I got a really good chance cause he shows up here a lot. And it's like, man, their home range is a section like you and 17 other people have that deer on camera. And you're and all saying like, the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, it's just, 
I don't know. It's that's that's kind of a weird one. I I've really you know, and I don't care that people do this, but I've really tried to stay away from falling in love with deer that way because mm-hmm. I just it doesn't matter to me. You know, like there I don't plan on them coming back next year, and I don't. It doesn't really bother me when they walk across the fence and they get shot somewhere else because that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. Someone shared a story over the weekend about that happening, but but the guy that shot it died of cancer that that next like spring, and so they're like, well, he probably is the one that should have gotten that deer, you know. And everyone else was initially pissed about it because like, well, why did he get it? He didn't have any pictures of it in his trail cam. That doesn't mean his was it wasn't his deer. So let me know what you think about this because you talked about entitlement and and so like this whole, you know, I, I've been like really kind of playing around with this whole like, is there too much ego in hunting? How do I apply human nature uh, to some of these things that are to like, just to, how do I think about how do we approach it? How do we be a good exemplar and a good steward of like, I don't want to get into to go and like tit for tat with people. I want to try to um, transcend some of it. And what I think happens if, if someone experiences getting big deer for a very long time or they're getting them on trail cam and they're kind of like having that sense of entitlement. When you experience that success, you're kind of getting that sense of entitlement in the deer woods in the sense that, well, I shot a six pointer last year. This year I can only shoot an eight and then I can only shoot a 10 and then a 12 and then this many inches and, and so on and so forth. Or then I have to kill it in its bed. Like I, I get the idea of increasing the challenge. Um, but just once you start to do that, you start to gain this entitlement. Then, then comes paranoia now, now that we're doing this, I'm taking these big deer and it's, it's going great for me. Like now I'm paranoid that someone else might take that deer or claim that deer. Um, and then that feeds control. And now I'm trying to control things like, Hey, you shouldn't have shot that deer. Now I'm trying to tell other people how to use their tag. And I just yep. think that, you know, it, it's kind of created this effect of entitlement, paranoia and control. And, and that's kind of a little bit what I believe we're seeing. And I don't know if you've, thought about that way or not but i'm you know since i have you here i'm curious to get your thoughts man i think personal goals are great like i think if somebody shoots a six pointer this year and they say it's eight pointers or bust next year as long as that's just their personal journey yep great go nuts i mean i look at this like i i filter a lot of this stuff through like you know i quit drinking 10 years ago and started going to the gym like i i needed to quit drinking and i needed to start going to the gym and what i realized what like through that process was like no, nobody else is accountable for my happiness. Like yep. we always like to blame other people for how we feel and our happiness and our contentment and everything. Like this is on us. Like I'm sure anybody can arc into your day at any point and ruin your day. But generally it's kind of up to you to be happy with yourself and your choices. And I look at this and I go, if you want to set the goal of one sixties or bust and you want to work your ass off for that and be obsessed with it. Great. Do that. But the minute you start talking down to somebody who's real happy to shoot a two and a half year old or something, that's when you suck. Like that's when you change the whole thing because this isn't about them. Like this isn't about other people. Like just take your own journey. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that's really tricky about taking new people out. And I think we should be really like, I think those of us who are lucky enough to get to do this a lot should be taking new people out a lot, but we have to be really careful to allow them to find their path. Like I'm, I'm running into this with my daughters because my daughters are 11 and they're hunting and it's like, it's not my hunt. I don't care, you know, however much work I put into scouting and everything. It's like their decisions They're You, you want to shoot this doe? You want to shoot a fawn? You want to shoot a forky? I don't care. Like I just, I sit back and I go, if it gets in front of us and you're feeling itchy, we're going to, we'll shoot it and we're going to go through the whole process and just let it happen. And I think 
I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, like this is a, it's a weird thing. Like I, I always think about like, I hate, I, I shouldn't say it. I don't like country music. Okay. It's not my thing. That's okay. I won't judge it's, you. It, it's just not, <laughs> but I look at it and I go, I get why people like it. Yeah. Like if you love Luke Bryan, great. I don't, doesn't affect me at all. It's just not my thing. We're just different. Yep. And the same thing applies in every facet of our life, including hunting. So if it's like, if all you're into it for is, you know, another head on the wall, great. Go nuts. Just don't shit on other people. Just like if you're only into it for me, that's great. I wouldn't shit on somebody that's, you know, holding out for a Pope and Young or better or whatever. Just, just keep it to yourself. That's your journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because some people think that you were promoting the killing of forkies and shaming on the big buck hunters. I'm like, no, nah, that's not what we're doing at all. I'm just saying it's your take, it's your hunt. Teach his own, you do you. If that's what you're into, do it. And I'm similar. Like, just don't shit, just don't be mean to other people. I don't know what that part's all about. And I think it does come from that selfishness. Like, I well, if you shoot big bucks and there's less for me to shoot, well, how do you know that? That's yeah. not what any big like Zach Farenbaugh doesn't think that way. Like big buck killers, the mature buck killers like yourself or like Andy May or whoever's getting it done at a high level, Johnny Stewart. And so if I can name all these guys all day long, they're not concerned with someone else killing a deer. They don't care. And if I kill a fork or a six pointer because I have three kids on the age of five and I get like two days of hunt so my wife doesn't kill me and I'm going to shoot something for meat because like legitimately that's what I want to do, then that doesn't that doesn't like prohibit or is that the word i'm looking for prohibit your ability to kill a mature buck the people that know how to get it done that is that's a different we're playing a different ball game me killing a spike has no bearing on 150 inch deer now yep. there may be less of them that age into that but i don't fully believe that i don't i i think you know doug duran had said uh there's there's qdma quality deer management but there's also healthy herd management and in an area like cwd that's another unique circumstance where the younger deers are the ones spreading all the cwd because we all remember being 21 in the bar or wherever you're picking up ladies or chasing tail or whatever you want to call it. The younger ones are, you know, I'm at home with my kids and wife. I'm not doing that anymore. You know, the big bucks, they'll sit out a hole. According to Bill Thompson with Spartan Forge, they'll just sit out the rut because they're like, forget it. I'm not going to go risk my neck to go chase some doe. They'll wait and wait, and then they'll go make their move. It's just interesting that, like, again, it's this selfish, like, there needs to be more for me. And if you're shooting little ones, you're messing that up. And I'm thinking, well, I think you're just being selfish. Yeah. I mean, but it's, it's so easy right now to, for, for us in general to go find something that pisses us off. And if you're passionate about hunting, it's really easy to find you, you like you kind of actively have to try to not get sucked into that stuff, yeah. you know? And you, you know, you mentioned Zach and Andy May and some of those guys, like you, you couldn't, find less judgy hunters correct that's I mean, what i mean like the guys that are actually good that you're they're never going to be mean to someone and they're never going to concern themselves with it that's so then it's like well who are the ones that are doing this like who, who are you that you're you think you're that good that you got to shit on someone else like i think it's a scarcity mindset is that like the guys that drive big giant trucks because then they say like oh you must be overcompensating like i don't i just don't fully understand it i'm i feel like i'm just making a lot well, of stereotypes on this episode <laughs> <laughs> so, some people are just naturally pricks, but I think a lot of people just they're they don't have the self confidence that they're portraying. They're overcompensating that way, and you see that in the hunting space yeah. a lot, right? Like, you take Andy May. Andy May's so confident. 
because he's so good. Mm-hmm. You know, like you put Zach Farinball just about anywhere, he's going to find a deer and he's going to have fun. And he's going like, to have fun. Yeah, I've never heard someone yeah. scream at the top of their lungs on on video. You know, when they get a deer like he does, it's it's yeah. just yeah, it's pretty cool that when you have that level of con- like a stoic philosophy is something that I look to a lot, and it talks about just just do the work. Just put your head down and do the work. Just put your head down and do the work. And, um, you know, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. I can't control that someone else shot a buck that maybe I was interested in, but I can control how I respond to it. And maybe that means I need to take a minute. I need to go for a walk. I need to chill out. I need to take a day or two before I respond. But you don't always have to have an opinion. Sometimes you can just keep that shit to yourself and move on. You don't have to deploy your opinion. And I think social media it almost pulls it out of us sometimes. Like we feel like we need to have an opinion or a voice. Like, well, I should probably weigh in on this. Sometimes you don't have to. I, I fantasize about a world where social media just goes away or they, they implement something where you have to pay to comment. Like if you had to pay like a dollar every time, people you just to shut comment, their mouth. They, yeah. I think it would just change things a little bit for the better, <laughs> but it's not, I mean, we, we, we kind of villainize that right now because that's the thing we see as the enemy and it, believe me i'm not but like it was al- but it was always there like I, I think i wrote an article about this myself like it was there you just didn't hear about it instead you know bill and tom got in their truck and they talked shit about you behind your back you know yeah. after they got to the registration station but you know because again no one's going to say this stuff to your face no, they never do and i mean it, like when i was at when i was at peterson's bow hunting that was when people would send emails and they'd still send letters and i wrote the white column at outdoor news for like I don't know how many years, quite a few years. Mm-hmm. And I used to have people send me handwritten letters back in the day about how shitty I was. And I was like, this was always there. It was just like a little more effort to try to take me down. You know, like we've always had this aspect of it. It's just so easy now. And we're just exposed to so many people. It's too much. Yeah. We're not meant to be friends with this. Many. It's just, it's really hard. Uh, just generally speaking, I had another thought that I got buried by the the new thoughts that kept emerging. I have like popcorn here, um, <laughs> but hey, the phone lines are open. I just figured I'd take a second to say that uh, the number is on the screen. If you're watching on Instagram, uh, you know, head on over to YouTube if you want to jump in the comments or Facebook. But the number is two six two seven five seven forty one twenty two. If you have thoughts, you want to weigh in, uh, you got questions for for Tony, feel free to jump in. The call queue is is open, and I'd be happy to bring a caller in if, if uh, someone want to do that. So I wanted to just at least say that it's on the screen, but sometimes people feel like they don't want to interrupt or they get nervous or whatever. So feel free. And this is one of those things too, where asynchronous communication is the way of the world. People are less inclined to, to talk on a phone these days uh, as something that I've learned over time doing this. And they've, they've even told me like, man, I, I wanted to call him, but I just, yeah, I, I wasn't super comfortable. Like I, you know, but a lot of times it's like it's usually it's bath night and they're giving the kids baths or something. I'm like, well, I can't because it's dinner or bath night or whatever it is. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Anytime we get callers, it's usually a pretty good time. The last question is like, can we get some prank callers? I mean, we had someone tell us that uh, Ted Nugent gave him a reach around or Sasquatch did some weird mm. stuff. So I'm like, oh, cool. We have contextual prank callers now. Like, you're not just, you know. 
Yeah, Ted, like, Ted, Ted Nugent doesn't seem like he would be that generous of a lover. Yeah, I don't. I think you're probably right about that. He's probably just reaching he for his guitar. He seems like he'd be pretty selfish in the sack, if you ask me. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. He might listen to this someday. We'll see. No, good. but this is—it's a pretty good dialogue. Um, you know, beyond all this stuff, man, you—you you really are—you um, have a lot of experience. I—you I, uh, talked about like it's un, unusual for people to to. If you're watching a video and like 350 plus inch deer go down in one video, um, that's not our videos. We have a show out on YouTube, and and so far like one deer has been killed inside of like seven episodes. <laughs> so it's usually just a lot of uh, shenanigans. But uh, let's see what what did uh, a couple. I'll just read some of the comments here real quick to give people who the hell has time to worry about somebody else. In all honesty, I'm too busy focusing on what I need to do. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Um, and if you do have time to worry about other people, then you're not focusing enough on your own hunt. Kind of like your point about the out-of-state people. Like, just go focus on yep. your own hunt. And you'll, it's like people put more energy into to a shortcut than they do to solving the problem. Yep. Because, or to cheating, like, or whatever. It's just uh, it's a Man, sad that is Man, that is a human nature thing. Yep. Like, I'd rather get surgery on my lower back than do the physical therapy and the stretching and the strength work to, you know, get my core in shape. Like, I'd rather take a pill to get skinny than go to the gym. Like, we we like shortcuts, yeah. but they don't work very well. I'd rather do ABC to get rich. But it's like, well, yeah, but like if you would have just taken all that time and just like worked really hard, you, you could have gotten, I don't know, or saved or whatever you got to do. Um, Tony Cordero, uh, I think that even though our numbers aren't growing, uh, where did I go? At the rate we would like to see, shows like this, Meat Eater and several others are doing a pretty great job at recruiting the right kind of folks. Well, that's good to hear. Thank you for that. Yeah, I like this guy. He's good. He's a good dude. Uh, how you approach bringing a new hunter on? Let's see. Am I reading that correctly? This is where I get bad. Um, when you have partners, you share property with asking from Path Knight. Oh, how do you? I think there should be the letter or the word "do" in there. How do you approach bringing new hunters when you have partners you share property with? Is that a question you want to take? Yeah, I would love to take that. Uh, talk to your other hunting partners. And figure out what you can do. You know, I mean, every those these situations are so different. I don't know if he's talking a private place where somebody owns it and everybody else is just there, or it's a lease or whatever. But there are a lot of landowners out there that are pretty good about bringing somebody new. If you if you have a good relationship with them, I bring a lot of new people to places. I mean, I do own some land, but I have way more permission based and then public. Like if if the only place you hunt. Okay, he says he's in private, private Buffalo. Buffalo. That's yeah. that might be a little different story. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Tony Smith, take him down to Tiffany Bottoms there, where there's like fifteen thousand acres of public land, and go have a hunt there. And nobody can kick you out. Nobody can say no. And there's plenty of deer in there. That's my answer to that one. I saw uh, hundreds of deer in the Wisconsin Dells over the weekend when we were up there for the trade show. Granted, they're all does, and they may have CWD, but. One of the shirts we have says shoot deer. And one of the instances that I've witnessed in kind of doing this and paying attention to stuff, of course, um, is that kids were saying, young hunters were saying uh, at trade shows, in person, online, so forth, in a number of places, I didn't shoot that deer because it wasn't big enough. I didn't shoot. I passed on this 120. I passed on this 130. I'm waiting for 150. I'm like, oh, well, have you shot any other deer? Well, no, I haven't shot anything yet. I'm like, well, you can't go to the gym and expect to bench press 200 pounds if you've never bench pressed ever. You've got to work yep. up to it. So we say shoot deer, and I don't mean that like take out the herd. I mean like get your practice and get your reps in. 
you know, go somewhere where there's a high concentration of does, get your tags and start practicing because full drawn a deer, if you've never done that as a young hunter, like you're, you're not going to get the big one when he comes around. You're going to shit yourself and pee on both legs and it's not yep. going to be a good experience. You're going to miss, you're going to wound him uh, and it's going to be terrible. You know, get, yep. you got to practice. And that, I mean, you know, this maybe is a weird kind of transition here, but the, the experience of one of the things that's so cool about whitetail hunting specifically is it literally can be a year round process. And, you know, when you get out West and you're talking elk and mule deer and stuff, it's not the same thing. That's so much more of an in the moment kind of hunt that's sort of here and gone, you know, like you can believe me, you can scout Western critters too, but it's not like a whitetail. You're taking a trip. So you're thinking about it very differently. But even, even if you live out there, it's okay. You know, like most of those elk are coming down to private. It's just a different thing for a lot of the parts of the year. And, you know, their migration patterns and stuff totally different, but whitetails can be year round and, it's all, it all can be pretty damn rewarding and lead up to good stuff, but it takes a lot of time. Like it, if you want to get really good and you're like, I'm, I'm going to work my way into being a 150 or bus kind of guy, that's great. But that's, if you don't have a badass spot to hunt, that's a long process mm-hmm. to get that good. And we don't, we don't really acknowledge that enough. Like how hard this stuff is. Like you're talking about, you know, your buddy who goes up in the big woods in Northern Wisconsin and kills big bucks. That's a, that guy can probably go anywhere and kill or at least find pretty good deer because that's a hard environment to do that. And there's so often when we, we talk about this stuff, we kind of don't acknowledge like the real difficulty level of most of this. And, you know, it's easy when you've been doing it a long time to be like, well, yeah, killing little ones is I'm not going to do that. That's too easy for me. Well, there's a lot of people out there where they're that's their like that's their challenge. That's still their hurdle. They haven't gotten through that yet for whatever reason. And so people are just different points of their journey. Yeah, the different points of the journey is a is a thing that I can't stress enough. And it's it only needs to be stressed because people hate on it. People are going to say negative things. It's like, well, just you know, take it easy. Another Taylor Swift quote: "Quote, it's seven a.m. Calm down. <laughs> like, why are you coming at so me like I got, that?" Before we move on, I got to ask you: What's the deal with this Taylor Swift stuff? I, you know, my is daughter it, is five, and she plays Taylor Swift a lot. But I've always liked Taylor Swift. I think she plays really catchy music, and I really enjoy it. And and as a marketer by trade, she has transcended country music and into pop and jumped genres. And she's done such an eloquent job of it that I'm just a huge fan. I just think she gets it. She does it right, and she happens to make pretty catchy stuff that I can get on board with half the time and dance with my daughter in the kitchen. So I love it. Do you, do you know who else is a huge Taylor Swift fan? I don't. Mark Kenyon. I would believe it. Mark and I feel, I feel like Mark and I are pretty similar. I'm not going to like say he's yeah. an idiot. Like I'm an idiot, but I feel as though we're a bit, we have our moments. <laughs> yeah, Mark is a huge Taylor Swift fan. Yeah. I didn't know that. And it's very well known that I am because clearly I'm talking about it on every podcast lately. So, and just letting it leak out here and I have no shame. I don't care. Like people are like, Oh, you like to, I'm like, get over your ego, dude. And you like it too. You can't tell me you're going to listen to it and not tap your feet. Come on. <laughs> Even. Yeah. So no, that's, I, didn't, that's... I didn't know this was going to be a trigger for you here. <laughs> if I could play Taylor Swift right now, I would, it's just so great, but I'd probably get in trouble for like copyright infringement or something weird. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. I think this is a really fun conversation. Uh, I have a personal question I want to ask you. Um, I, I <laughs> Hunting last season, I you can see it on our YouTube at some point if you ever dive into our, our rabbit hole of uh, shenanigans. But I, I, don't, I, I understand conceptually what a staging area is, but I don't know if when I'm looking at one, like what signs to look for. And, and up until recently, 
Derek on our team has uh, videos and articles about buck rub clusters, clusters of rubs, where these deer are leaving their bedding area or they're very close to their bedding area and they're just killing time and they're rubbing up several trees. It's not a rub line, it's a rub cluster. Very different then. Now, is that similar to a staging area? Is that like a pre-staging area and how are you identifying that? That is a staging area. I mean, that is my number. I literally wrote about that an hour before this. That is like my number one winter scouting find. Because if you find a cluster of rubs you in the cover, right? Yep. Yep. You found a place where, where buck or bucks spent time probably in daylight on their feet, laying down sign. And that to me, if you hunt pressured deer or you're not just going to wait for November 7th to go, like if you're going to hunt late September, October, middle October, that's where you kill big bucks. Like to me, that is, the most important find if I'm hunting public land almost always, you know, I might, I might get into something where I find like a water pattern or a river crossing or something that's just banging. But generally if I'm hunting around a lot of other people, which I usually am staging areas are so important and they're always identifiable by those cluster of rubs. Like it's, that's just it. It's so good. Well, and does use staging areas too. So then like, how does that, how do you factor that in? Well, I like to hunt where the does are too, That's but good. It, it's, it's just different. So what I want to do when, when you're talking about those cluster rubs, the reason that they're there is because they got up from their bed and they're going to feed, but they don't want to go there before it gets dark or they left that food source in the morning and they're coming back and they're just in the security cover, but they're not ready to go lay down yet. And those places are where you kill bucks. Like if you hunt pressured land, those like I'm, and you know, like I know there's like bed hunting specialists and all this stuff. Like I'm not one of them. Like a a staging area to me is just the place where I'm going to focus on after, you know, if it's like two weeks into the season and, you know, everybody's like, oh, the lull's coming or it's, you know, beginning October and I'm going to wait for Halloween or whatever. I'm going in to try to find those staging areas. If I if I didn't already find those rubs winter scouting, and I'm going to look for that, and a lot of times I'm going to do an observation on the outside of it and just be like, who's getting up? Who's who's going to come through here before last light? And a lot of times you'll see them. You make the move the next night if the conditions don't change, and that's when you kill them. Like that's, I probably have more bucks on my walls from that kind of strategy than just like, a rut hunt or early season kind of field edge thing. Like that's real important to me. The one thing that, uh, again, I'm, I'm referencing Derek here, uh, and it sounds like we should probably have another episode when he's present because we could get really into some fun tactical things. Um, he, he, I'm learning a lot from him because he's close to me. Like, you know, I mean, accessibly I can, I can text him and he'll answer right? and I can call him and he'll answer and we'll hang out and all that jazz. Our, our kids are friends, our wives are friends, all that jazz. Plus he's here every Tuesday. Normally, uh, other than today, because he's in Arizona. But my point is, he mentioned to me, and I. This is one of those things where the, guys like you and him and others that are are like really good at this. The the details you pick up on that I will not even pay attention to, or they won't even be on my radar. He's talking about the. You're talking about rubs in 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 spring scouting and winter scouting. He's looking at the coloration of the rub to distinguish when that rub was laid down. He's like, well, this is probably an October rub versus a September versus a November versus like, you know, last week. 
And that's yep. telling me what that deer is doing at that time of the year versus my dumbass at some point is like, oh, well, that's a fresh rub. I should be looking at that one because it looks cool. And that's like the photos that I see. And that's like, a, oh, that, that looks like a big one, it, you know, because it's higher off the off the ground or the base of the tree. It's like, you know, I can tell it's a bigger deer and the height of the rub is what you look for. It, but I didn't even take into consideration the coloration. I, I th- like thought like, oh, those just must be old historical rubs. I didn't realize that you could actually, without being overly scientific about it, could measure that, yeah, that was probably a rub from October. So yeah. this is what you want to be thinking come that October low. Like, here's a rub cluster from October, you know, that you're going to want to consider for next year. So you're compounding your knowledge in a way that is setting you up for far greater success. And, like, you're going to get more at-bats at bigger deer. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly, when you when you start figuring that stuff out, like, the the cluster rubs and the staging areas and that, that in cover sign like that, what you really do is you unlock the entire season because so many people hit it hard right away, you know, opener, whether that's in, you know, Wisconsin or Minnesota where it's mid September or whatever, October one, somewhere else. But there's always that downtime in the first, you know, 15, 20 days of October where the pressure is lower. People aren't out as much. So if you're a public land hunter, like my favorite time to hunt, the big woods in northern Wisconsin is the first two weeks of October because the the weekend uh, or the opening week kind of fervors over and people aren't really out there yet getting ready for rifle season. They're not paying attention to the rut stuff. And I get those deer on natural movement, but it's always in the cover and it's almost always tied to some kind of staging area. And I've seen that in a lot of it's not just northern Wisconsin. And so what you do is you go, OK, I kind of know. I might catch one off guard the first week, right? Might be a field edge thing. It might be something else. When it starts to get 7, 10, 12 days into the season, now I know the pressure's got to them. Those deer, they're not going to be they're not going to be risking it the way the way they were on opening night when they haven't been hunted for 9 months. I also have the advantage of people kind of giving up for a little while. And so those deer are going to move. Like the the October low, I know people really buy into that, but man, if you if you're hunting pressured ground, your number one enemy is hunting pressure. And if the October lull can convinces most of your competition to stay home, now you just need to go find where those deer are going to be. You don't have to work against the other hunters. You just work against the deer. And that's why this winter scouting stuff now and finding those rubs and, and rub lines are really valuable too. They're not the same to me as a cluster of rubs, but you can find that stuff now and make a plan for that dead zone of the season when most of your competition is going to say, it's not worth it for me to go. And that, that matters, man. Like if you're out there when other people aren't there and you have kind of an idea where, you know, they probably bedded here on this knob and worked their way to this Creek bottom and they staged here before they headed to the neighbor's alfalfa or however your situation is, you have a huge advantage when that down time of the season comes and you don't take yourself out and go, well, I'm just going to wait for Halloween. Cause it's going to be better. Like, man, I, I want to hunt now. And you can put yourself in that position if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I'm one of those guys that, you know, I would love to go now, so to speak, but I also know that I have less intel. I wouldn't say confidence, but there is certainly this lack of confidence. If you ever, if you ever end up watching any of our stuff, you're going to, you're going to see how indecisive I am mainly because I don't know what I don't know. And so I'm like, well, this, I can make this choice, just this choice. And maybe it's great. But then I second guess myself. Well, what if I go over here? And then if I pick this tree, then they'll go past that one. And it's because I don't have an overall great understanding of what's happening yet. I'm still working through that piece 
and I'm getting further and it's, you know, that, that knowledge is compounding year over year and I'm getting, I'm, you know, I've, I've said like, you know, every now and again, a blind squirrel finds a nut and that, that's the buck that I have on the wall this year. But it could be said that I am getting better at things like I'm getting better at getting in the, the, what I call like the red zone, but it's when you're in the red zone, the field kind of, uh, you know, you know, expands or whatever you want to say. And then it gets really hard to punch it into the end zone. And I'm that hunter right now. I've moved the ball down the field, but I'm stuck in the damn red zone and the deer have a really good defense and I'm having a tough time scoring because killing a big buck is really the, the challenge that I'm up against. I've gotten in front of some big ones lately in the last several seasons and I've only just recently connected and got it done. And uh, so that was like a really big, you know, seven point score for me. I was like, man, I did it. You know, this is great. And I'm, in the grand scheme of things, I'm definitely losing the football game, but I'm having a ton of fun learning and it's great. But that's a, that is some that is such a common scenario. I mean, most people go through that where you you get good at killing the does and the little ones, and the big ones are just different. And it takes a lot of people when they hit that stage, they struggle for a long time, mm-hmm. and then you break through and you never really go back. I mean, you can still have bad seasons, but it's never you never have that like self doubt where you're like, I'm I'm not going to make this happen. It's never going to happen. It starts to change, like. You, you get into that position, but what you're talking about there with like not having the confidence in certain spots or certain times of the season or something like that, man, when you winter scout and you find those spots and then you sneak in there on October 3rd, cause you have nothing going on. And you're like, I got, I got an evening to hunt. You bring mm-hmm. your saddle or whatever in there and you see those fresh rubs in there. You go now it's pretty simple, right? Like they were there last year. Somebody was there last year for sure that felt safe in that spot. And you can almost guarantee he was moving in the daylight. If he made those rubs way back in the woods and you look at that this year and go, somebody's going to follow that playbook. Like another deer, if it's not him, yeah, the, the land isn't be- changing. So like, yeah, and maybe it is like, maybe there's housing development or egg fields are changing and those there's variables to that. But, um, yeah, the, uh, oh, man, I had something else I was going to say there too, but about, just kind of learning the stuff and figuring it out. That's all right. I got distracted reading a comment here. Tony said, because <laughs> I was laughing in my head, Tony Cordero said, uh, Tony, when you miss a deer, is it okay for you to say you pulled a Kenyan? <laughs> I say way worse than that about Kenyan, buddy. <laughs> well, he likes Taylor Swift, so he's got that going for him. <laughs> Mark, Mark is a... Uh, I'll have to text him. Mark, he's a great guy. Yeah. But he's so fun to make fun of. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, poor guy. I, we're probably similar yeah, in that we, regard. We probably should have done a separate episode on winter scouting here because you got me all fired up on this topic. Well, now. we should. We should circle back. And, you know, I don't want to take a bunch of your time, but, you know, you tell me what works for you offline and, and we can circle back. And honestly, I think it'd be good for to have someone like Derek who has a little bit more of that confidence because he's had that success and the experiences there. And hunting in the Northwoods uh, has really carved him into a great hunter because he can, he can really zero in on an area there and fi- find the mature deer and hunt and kill them. And I think, you know, up in the Nicolay, that's, that's just not an easy task um, no. at all. That, I, I mean, I mean that, that environment makes good hunters because it's, there are just so many fewer advantages. You know, I mean, even if like, if you go to some of these better states or, you know, like a, a, an Iowa type state, right? Even the public land down there, when you talk about the deer density and the amount of fields, you know, agriculture that's available, it's just easier to figure out. It just is like, and then you get into that kind of monoculture, mono habitat, big woods. And I really think, in, especially if it's flat, if you don't have hills to work with that are going to be some terrain traps and some, some extra terrain to work with. If you go hunt 
flat big woods. And this is the same thing down south too. You see this in Louisiana and some other states. If you can go kill, like get on deer in that environment, you're you're doing just fine because that is just not an easy place to do it. You have you have like the fewest advantages as a hunter in those environments, and the deer have so many over you. That's wild. Yeah, it's like so I, I love it. it uh, my favorite environment is the big woods in northern Wisconsin because it kicks my ass all the time. Well, it's funny because I love it for different reasons. I mean, it'll kick my ass, but I just love the 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 vastness of it and and how close you are to what I, you know God to nature. It's just a really you're you're just so much more removed. There's predation. There's wolf packs. There's bears. It's just a different animal up there. Like up there, I'm a little nervous to fall asleep on the ground. I go hunting on the western part of the, the, the state down in southwest Wisconsin. I'm like, meh, if I fall asleep at the base of this tree for a quick cat nap over lunch, I'll be fine. In the Northwoods, no are, fucking way am I doing that. Are you taking a lot of naps at the base of your tree? Is this, are we getting <laughs> to the root of some of the problems here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, gun season, I'm definitely napping. Bow season, not so much, but I do have three kids and, and, you know, I'd be remiss to say that there haven't been a few hunts where I'm like really tired. So I, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I may not be the first person that's called my, ha- uh, hammock, my, uh, my hunting saddle, a uh, uh, a knapsack, but you know, it, it serves a good purpose there. I'm definitely safer in that than a tree stand. I'm already, you know, the ropes are already tight. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, no, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to be out there. And the Northwoods is a very special place. I, that's where I cut my teeth hunting. Um, and I never saw any big deer up there ever. I mean, I saw bucks, but they were never big. And I don't even know how you would begin to dissect that. It's a totally different paradigm. There's, I know, but there's some big ones in there, man. Some of the biggest deer I see in any given year are up in that big woods. And it is, it's wild. Most I mean, deer the, are hard you know, What's that? They're, they're, they're got to be hard-earned deer. They are hardy. You know, if they can, they can yeah. make it through up there. Uh, but it, when you start figuring it out, I mean, because, I, you know, the top end just about anywhere is big. Like the top end, uh, you know, when you start getting into like almost anywhere, the top end is going to be at least 150, 160. And, you know, you, there's 200-inch deer in Wisconsin for sure. Mm-hmm. And you get into that big wood stuff, and it's just the density is so low. And you mentioned the predator. The predator prevalence is really high. and But, man, those bucks, you got to look at it and go, even though there aren't that many of them compared to a lot of other parts of the state and parts of the country, they got a lot of security up there if they figure it out. And they can get old and big. And it is so – it's so cool to see one of those, like a 160 – coming through the woods up there. Cause it's like, it's just such a special thing, you know, and I haven't killed one yet. I've been so freaking close and I've killed some decent ones, but I've seen a couple deer where I was just like, that deer is to anyone is a shooter anywhere. I mean, just like unbelievable. And I think it's so freaking cool. Yeah. My worst nightmare just came true. My wife on the off chance was watching and here we have it. <laughs> I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Oh yeah, that'll be fun when I go upstairs later after all this. Oh, so you yeah. take naps, do you? Yeah, when I'm gun hunting, sure. Uh, not not so much bow hunting. Bow hunting, I try to take pretty damn seriously. And you know, actually, I got I got uh, I missed an opportunity in a 140, uh, what I believe to be a 140, because Greg, my uh, co-host, my buddy, texted me. He texted me some article about deer hunting, and I pick up my phone. I'm reading this article. And that's when the deer came, and I was like, not 
as prepared as I should have been, and I didn't even have the greatest opportunity. So from here on forward, I'm like, yeah, I'm just not pulling my phone out. Like, it, like get all these text messages, and it's just like, leave me alone. Because at this point, yep. now I'm out here hunting, and if and if I like don't get the opportunity because of something I did, I'm gonna not be able to defend that to my wife, <laughs> and she's gonna be pissed at me. Like, if you're gonna be out there doing it, do it. Don't don't distract yourself with dumb shit. Now, if you're eating, that might be different because I'm known to have a few snacks in the in the tree stand. Um, but yeah. Oh, dude, it's hard. I mean, it's I I love hunting places where I don't have reception on my phone, and I've started, especially on like all day sits during the rut. I'll I'll shut my phone off, and I'll be like, I'm gonna try to check it like once an hour, and I try to guess like, has it been an hour? And that freaking phone addiction becomes real when you do that because you're like it's got to be it had to have been an hour now and you pick it up and you're like it was 17 minutes ago oh, or something, you know? yeah. like, it's it's yeah, real like what if um, you- hey can we address this question here that this this guy just uh wrote in here quick about hunting the northwoods yeah yeah that's good thank you um he asked you know what would be your best tip for the northwoods scout just scout man like winners i i think my most valuable time for hunting big woods is the amount of winter scouting I do out there because the whole thing for me when I'm I'm dealing with a low deer density is where is the concentration of deer first like when you think about if you if you drew an Iowa tag for example you wouldn't go to look just for deer on a property you'd be like where do the big ones live because I'm in Iowa and there's deer everywhere when you go hunt the north woods and you're you know or you were down south in the swamps you'd be like, I need to find where some deer live first. And if I find that, I'm probably going to be around a buck that would make me really happy. So my thing is, where are those community scrapes that I could find when the snow melts? Because if there's a community scrape there in the wood, you know, in that big woods, it's probably in some level of a travel hub. And how does it tie into the rubs that I can find around there? And burning burning through the woods, burning boot, boot leather in those environments and dropping pins when you find that sign and figuring out how does it relate to one another that is like it's so valuable because at least when you start the season you're like i know they spent time here and they laid down sign here and last year they were in here staging here and it just gives you that like so much better of a starting point to go where's that concentration and then if i find a concentration of deer where i start seeing some deer and you know there's does or something moving through there then I can start dialing it in because I know I'm not very far away from where a buck that would probably make me happy is. I'm just like on the cusp of it. And then it becomes a game of like observe, move, observe, move. But it's the whole foundation of it is laid with winter scouting. So important up there. Good answer. Yeah, we're going to have to do another one where you come back and we talk tactics. And I think it'd be cool to just do a Northwoods episode, honestly. I mean, you have Northwoods in Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, those are in Pennsylvania. It probably isn't too different either. It's a bit hillier out there. Um, but certain yep. parts of, of where I'm at, like you get it, like PA reminded me a lot of, um, of, uh, Northern Wisconsin. When I was there a couple of years ago. I forget the, the forest I was in. I, I never remember. And I never say it correctly. Uh, Al, Allegomi or Allegheny or something like that forest and PA. And it, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in Northern Wisconsin by and large. But yeah, it's very, very environment. Really, it really teaches you about mast and browse and, you know, a, a different deer world that's real valuable to learn. 
Yeah, some of those details that we talked about, like the the age of the of the rubs, the clusters. Another thing Derek's mentioned, like he looked at, oh, this branch is broken way up top here, and it looks like the only thing that could have broken that would have been a deer antler and only a wide one. I'm like, dude, how did you notice that? Like you, and you're just combing right through. Like I, I can't, I couldn't pick that out of him in a dialogue. It comes up because he's seeing it, and I'm like. What else am I missing that is in all of you, all of y'all's big, like in your heads that like have all of this knowledge from experience of doing this? So I would love to do another episode, have a dialogue around some of that stuff and see what we can pull from it that like you guys, I won't say you take for granted, but you, you know so much that it's like the college professor that's probably too smart to be teaching where you're like, Dumb it down for me some more. No, 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 more. No, no, more even. Like, there's just so many things that you're seeing that others aren't even, you're so acutely aware that a lot of us are not even, like, it's not even on our radar. Um, so. Well, it's just time to put it in. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I got a real lesson in that. When I, when I was at Peterson's bow hunting, um, I buddied up with an outdoor, uh, outdoor photographer who lives up there named Bill Marshall. And Bill has made his living photographing wild animals for probably 40 years now. And I went squirrel hunting with him one day. He's like, you want to go squirrel hunting? I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, let's go. The amount of things he pointed out in the woods that I had no clue about. I mean, dear bro, like unbelievable knowledge of the woods. Like you want to talk about woodsmanship? It was like a master's course on that. And I remember thinking like, I don't know anything compared to this guy. And it was just purely from the sheer amount of time he spent in the woods watching animals and, and, you know, moving through the woods and looking for stuff. It's so important. And we've kind of replaced a lot of that with trail cameras. And we kind of have this mentality. Like if I put in this food plot and I stay away, those deer get real comfortable there. And when I show up, I shoot them and that's great. But you don't really learn a lot about wild animals. Yeah, this is like you learn. You could draw a comparison. I'm interrupting you because I'm getting so excited here. Um, Like you know, the difference between people that like there was a point in time when I drove up north with my dad, and we did not literally. There were no cell phones. There wasn't. This was like pre Nokia even, and we had maps. And I had the map as like a 13, 14, whatever the hell age I was, 14, 15 year old, holding the map. And like looking for landmarks and paying attention to street signs and being a navigator in the passenger seat. Now I can't like I can't go anywhere without putting it in my GPS just because I like to see how long it's going to take me to get there. And it gives me like police radar and traffic jams. So like, yeah, do I really need it to go from here to there? No, but there's these other added benefits. So now I've become so dependent on it that like shit, there was a point in time when like that didn't exist. And so similar, like trail cams are training us. We're getting learned behavior from this technology and they're being banned. There's controversy there, yada, 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 streaming cams, cell cams, trail cams, so forth. You know, that's a whole nother topic. um, One that I'm not going to dip into, but just like what you're talking about, like learning things by observing yourself is different. I personally think that I I would love to use trail cams. I'm just cheap. I don't have any. So it's like, Hey, well, this buck I, came tranching around, and I'm jacked about it because I've literally never seen this thing before. So, like to me, a six pointer versus a twelve pointer, it's the same difference. I'm just as excited. Like I don't care, um, and that's just me. But that's yeah, not casting judgment. I'm just yeah. 
I mean, you know, trail cameras are fun. They're great. Yep. I hope they don't keep getting banned because I don't want to take that away from people because if it goes away, it's never coming back. I mean, I, I do get a little wiggy about this live stream stuff and, you know, the cell cameras, we're pushing it pretty far with that. Like, so I, I get I get the arguments around it. But like generally, when you talk about like trail camera usage or a lot of the ways we get hunting information, you know, it's like, it, I'll, I'll give you an example. They just had the Bassmaster Classic just wrapped oh, up yeah. down yep. on the town. Tennessee River. Gussie won. You know, Gussie. Yeah. Yep. Right. How many, how many bass fishing shows would you have to watch and how much bass fishing content would you have to consume before you could win the classic? Yeah. It doesn't exist, right? Yeah. There's no amount of content you could consume without going out and fishing your ass off to get good enough. Like you, you have to play the game. You know, you can't sit back in like, it's great to observe it and watch it for, you know, entertainment and education. Like you can learn, like you listen to Andy May talk, you can learn something. You can become a better hunter for sure. But it's like an incremental thing. It's you just have to put it to practice. With, you still have to like take the ideas that you've consumed and do it just like a book. If you're going to read a book about how to do something, at some point you have to go do the thing and apply the knowledge. You have to have this like time where you're applying knowledge in real life situations. That's what college is. You, Hey, learn, learn, learn. Now you're going to apply that knowledge to whatever this thing is. And that should be the same for deer hunting. You're going to learn all this stuff. At some point, you got to get out there and do it. Otherwise, you're going to stay at the same spot. That's what I was going to say earlier. Oh, my God. I I remembered my point. I'm so sorry. So I'm really excited to remember this. So now now I'm being, like, ridiculous because I don't know if anyone else will remember it. But there was uh, (laughs) – I worked in IT for more years than I cared to, to be quite frank. And uh, I remember this this guy um, very well. Of course, I remember him. Um, he he was honestly he might be like a genius, just just a super smart guy. But at one point, he literally said to me something like, "Well, the moment I realized the moment I got good with computers was the moment I realized I could just break everything and I could just take this hard drive and start from the same place I left off, so it didn't matter. So then I just kept finding new ways to break things so I could learn how to fix it." Because no matter what I did, it wouldn't ever be so bad that I couldn't recover from this state. And, and it was at that point in deer hunting when I started to bust bucks out of beds and make big, bold moves, rather than being this like, well, I'm going to sit here still like a statue this whole entire hunt in this tree because it looks like a good tree and I'm not going to do anything because I might ruin the fact that a deer could come by. I wasn't learning anything, even if I was observing. So eventually I started making these moves and I was disrupting things. Now, granted, I didn't have an opportunity to kill something, but I was like, the knowledge gained was so, so good. And that was that me moving that ball down the field that I talked about. And now it's this game of like, anybody could go to golf and I could, I'd suck at golf. I'm not a golfer. It brings out my Tourette's, but I could go golf and I could get the ball down the fairway. But then I got to learn how to like use, you know, wedges and, and then you get it on the green and putting's like this whole other thing. Like, I feel like I'm in this putting stage now where, if you have a good putting game, you could get the ball down the fairway, but you could still suck and lose to the guy that can putt. So, like, now I'm learning how to putt, and that's how I look at it. And I'm, but I, by the way, I'm not learning how to putt because I can suck at golf. I'll never learn how to putt. But <laughs> that's the analogy that I draw because a few times I get dragged on a golf course. I'm like, this is stupid. I suck at this, but it's fun. But it's fun. It's a good day to, to be outside yep. in the summer or whatever. You got you to get out there and make mistakes. Yes. Like, that's, that's it. I mean, the... What you just said there is so true. Like you learn from mistakes. Like the the success is sweet, right? But the failures are what make you better. Like in everything. Yeah, the kid that know? shot 150 like, inch deer for the first time ever, he he got really lucky and probably didn't learn too much. 
that's fine. Good for him. You know, I mean, but yeah, I mean, there, yeah, whatever. Like, but that that does not a good hunter make. You know, like mm-hmm. the one off lucky kill is okay. That's great, but like to get better at it, you're going to go through a long process of making. You're going to mostly make mistakes. Like, and that's you know, it's so hard to really get that message to stick in new hunters. Like you, you have no idea how much failure is coming your way, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, like if you stick with it, like one of those will eventually not be a failure. And then eventually like a couple times a year, you'll just do things right. And it's going to be awesome. But getting to a point where you're really comfortable with that failure is like, okay, like you're going to move past that. You're going to go out, you're going to get busted and you're going to, you're going to pick the wrong stand. You're going to do dumb stuff you're gonna miss deer and you're gonna get busted drawing and you're gonna hit them poorly and you're gonna lose them in the rain you're like you're gonna that stuff's coming for you but overall sticking to it and learning to love the process is gonna get you to a point where it's worth it no matter what it's gonna fill your cup up even when you know that shitty stuff's coming like you know the bad stuff you're gonna make those mistakes but it's still so worth it to get after it and just try to figure this stuff out yeah, I agree. Well, at that point, I got you 22 minutes over the time that I said I'd keep you for. So um, it looks like it's still daylight out wherever you're at. And I'd like to keep you on somewhat of a schedule there. Otherwise, we could, I'm sure you could do this all night long, as I could too. Um, but, yep. you know, thank you very much for, for taking time out of your, your schedule and day to, to be here on our show. And um, if you guys haven't read uh, any of what Tony Peterson's doing, check out, like, just go to Mediator, type in your name, go to Google, and you'll find all of your recent articles. Um, you're pumping out quite a few of them. Like, I don't. How many do you do a week? Uh, not nearly as many as I used to. <laughs> okay. um, I when I when I was a full time freelancer, I was doing a stupid amount of articles. Um, sorry, my dog's going nuts here. Right. Somebody's yeah. coming home. That's, that's no um, for you know, sixty, seventy a year for Meat Eater, something like that. That's but they, awesome. you know, if they want to find my writing, they can go to themeateater.com. And yeah, check it out. Cool. Well, thanks a bunch. I will end the live broadcast. Everyone that uh, jumped into the comments, thank you so much. For everyone that didn't call, hey, no big deal. Um, we we opened up the lines for you, and uh, I understand that's uh, an awkward time to call in when it's seven o'clock on a Tuesday. So um, appreciate everyone that jumped in to comment. Thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, with that, I'll end the live broadcast, and uh, we'll catch you next week.